Today we hope to deal with the first article of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. In connection with that, we are going to read from Romans chapter 8. So I invite you to turn to Romans 8, verse 18 with me, to the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We now also turn to Lord's Day 9 of the Catechism. Page 525. 
What do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? That the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and all that is in them, and who still upholds and governs them by his eternal counsel and providence, is for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father. In him I trust so completely as to have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul, and will also turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this life of sorrow. He is able to do so as Almighty God, and willing also as a faithful Father. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, one of the wonderful things about children is that they are so trusting. When our oldest was a toddler, we lived in a house that had two floors. And from time to time, he would go halfway up the stairs and then turn around and fling himself down the stairs, expecting me to catch him. I always did. He had no fear because he had complete trust. That's what the trust of a child looks like. As we grow up, we lose that, don't we? We encounter tragedy and sorrow. Or maybe all it took was a few disappointing experiences in life. Either way, we fall into doubt in our walk of faith. Maybe not outright doubt, but we hold ourselves back. How do you recapture that sense of no holds barred trust in your walk of faith? The Catechism alludes to it as well, uses the phrase no doubt. In him I trust so completely as to have no doubt. So how do you get to no doubt? How do you get back to no doubt? Well, by realizing two things. First, who God is, and second, what doubt is. So today we're going to begin working our way through the Apostles' Creed again. The Catechism introduces us to the first idea in the Creed, namely that we confess our faith in God as creator. This doctrine of God as creator is is a beautiful thing that you find all over the Bible. Think, for example, of Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. Creation exists to declare the glory of God. What is God's glory? God's glory is the visible proof of his majesty. It is the visible proof of his power, his grandeur, his splendor, his might. Anytime, anytime that you see something that puts you in awe, anytime that you see something that makes you say, wow, you're catching a glimpse of the glory of God. 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory for those who can see. There are glimpses of glory everywhere if you have the eyes to see. And Job 26 verse 14 says that these things that we see, these glimpses are but the outer fringe of his works. How faint the whisper we hear of him. So not only are the things that make us say, wow, evidence of God's glory, but even the most awe-inspiring thing that you've seen in your life was only a whisper. It was only a faint whisper of the real thing. So that's what the Catechism wants to remind us of here in Lord's Day 9. God, the Almighty Creator, the one who out of nothing created heaven and earth and all that is in them, and who still keeps them going from moment to moment. It wants to put that God, it wants to reveal him to us. But as soon as you start talking about creation, you also need to raise the topic of sin, don't you? Because creation is under a curse. A reading from Romans 8 reminds us that creation is in bondage to corruption. It is subjected to futility. That means it does not attain the purpose for which it was made. Creation was meant to glorify God. Creation was meant to be a visible expression of his power, his grandeur, his majesty. And it still does that, but nowhere near what it could have been. That's because of the presence of sin. And that's on us. Man brought that sin into the world. With sin came the curse. And the curse is simply the consequences of sin. God pronounced that curse over the world that he had created. So now his glory is obscured. It's obscured because of our sin. Now this world looks like the kind of place that you could expect to see if God's glory was hidden most of the time. That's the consequences of sin, and we share in that. We all own that together. It's our fault that creation is under a curse. And yet, the creed and the catechism remind us in the very same breath that God is our Father. First of all, He is the Father of Jesus Christ. That's reflected in our reading as well. Christ Jesus is the one who died, says verse 34. He died for our sins. Those sins are taken away in Him. And so verse 34 asks us the question, who is to condemn And no one can stand up to condemn because Christ Jesus is the one who died in our place. He was condemned instead of us. And, says verse 34, he was raised and he is at the right hand of God and interceding for us. And not only that, but because of what he did, we are sons and daughters of God. Verse 15, earlier in this chapter, already makes that clear and our text this morning made it very clear as well. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. But God's children are not glorified yet. In, in that sense, there is still a part of our adoption that is outstanding. And that's why in verse 21, on the one hand, he can refer to us as God's children. And on the other hand, in verse 23, say that we still are waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. We're still waiting for this 
ultimate redemption of our bodies from sin and corruption, the sin and corruption of this world. But through faith, we already are God's children. We are already adopted. We do already belong to him. Now, this adoption is an enormous thing. You need to look at it from the perspective of Roman culture in those days to understand what he means. In those days, a man would sometimes deliberately choose a son to adopt. Remember again that we... Um, that. Um, uh, things were different back then. There was a higher rate of mortality. And people also had uh, differing ideas about a lot of things. And so it was possible for a man to deliberately choose a son to adopt. Maybe he would have none of his own. Maybe he wouldn't be happy with the one that he had. But the point is, a man who adopted a son had to choose him. He had to deliberately choose that particular person to become his heir and to carry on his name. And that act of choosing is the point here. When it says that God has adopted us as his children, it means that he was very deliberate in his choice. God's children are not an accident. They were not names drawn out of a hat, so to speak. They were deliberately chosen. And verse 29 of our reading further explains how deliberate that choice really was. It says in verse 29 that God foreknew his children. That means that he knew them long before they were born, even before the beginning of time. In Ephesians 1 verse 4, Paul says that the Father chose his children even before the creation of the world. Not only that, but he predestined them to be conformed to the image of his Son, in other words, not only did he know them ahead of time, but he destined them before a time to become certain kinds of people, people who reflect the image of his son, people who look like his son. In Reformed theology, we call this the doctrine of election, and it is a wonderful thing. And it says that those whom he predestined, he also called. So, so think about how many things had to be had to work together by divine appointment in order to, to get to that. First, he orchestrated events so that people would be born in a particular time, in a particular place. Think about your own life. Think about all of the possible combinations of events that, that could have happened to produce you and everything that came to the point where you came into this world, where you are sitting here this afternoon listening to this message. That's a, a staggering amount of things that needed to work out to get to that point. And then he waited patiently for these people that he, he caused to be born in a particular time and place. He waited patiently until they were old enough to respond, and then he called them in time. In other words, he had the gospel preached to them, and they became aware of who he was. Then he worked in their hearts through the Holy Spirit so that they believed in Jesus Christ. And at that point, they were justified, declared righteous in the sight of God. And now these people are headed towards eternal glory. You think about the scale that he is working with here. It is so far above and beyond our daily experiences. Think about the love of God. How much love do you need for, to plan someone's life from eternity? How much do you need to love someone to wait for thousands of years patiently until the right circumstances enable them to be born? 
How much do you need to love somebody, someone to then work in their lives long enough for them to come to know you and to trust you, to have faith in you, to finally spend eternity with you? That's a, a scale of love that is so far above and beyond anything that we could imagine. There's nothing really you can compare it with. If only we knew. If only we really grasped. If, if only all of God's people really grasped, really understood how much God loves them. What do you think that would do to our doubt? What would it do to our lives if we fully grasped the love that God has for us and lived it out? What would that do to our relationships with other people? How would it change us? See, when you measure life against the background of this fatherly love, then, then you have a much different perspective on everything else in life, including suffering. Paul is not trying to minimize suffering in this passage. Paul was a man who was more familiar with suffering than most of us would be. He's not saying in Romans 8 verse 28 that all things are good. He says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. He's not saying all things are good. They are not. There are many things that happen to God's people in this life that are not good. And the Psalms are full of the prayers and pleas of God's people when they're suffering. Think, for instance, of Psalm 28, verse 2. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Or Psalm 61 Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. These are God's people on their knees crying out to God in their suffering and in their misery. The Bible does not minimize the pain and the suffering of God's people. Sometimes people try to gloss over it. But people who try to gloss over the evil in this world are not, are not really reckoning with sin the nature of sin and the consequences that it causes. They're not mourning the brokenness of this world. Jesus did mourn when he came. Jesus cried at the grave of Lazarus. Jesus was deeply troubled at what sin had done to the world that his father had made. So Paul is not trying to minimize suffering, but he's putting it in perspective for us. And the perspective is God's eternal love for his people. It's a question of perspective. For you to have no doubt, you need to begin with this. You need to begin with who you are as a child of God. Your biggest problem in this world is not the issues that you're dealing with today. It is not the issues you were born with or the problems you have inherited. It is not the losses you have experienced or the adversity with which you have struggled. Your biggest problem, our biggest problem, is sin. We need to take that seriously. Sometimes we don't, and we, we tend to see all of our lives in terms of how it's different from everyone else's. But when we define our lives by the things that we think are wrong and what we think needs to be changed, we're not seeing things accurately. We're making the stage far too small for us to see God's work. And, and that holds true for prosperity as well, by the way. If you define God's love simply by the level of prosperity that you're, in, that you're enjoying, then you're missing out on something. You're missing something that is much bigger and much more valuable. That's why the prosperity gospel doesn't 
work because it ties God's favor to one very specific set of circumstances. God wants more for us. What does God want as our father? Oh, what does any father want for their children? He wants them to grow up. He wants us to grow into our full potential. What is our potential? The potential of God's children is to be conformed to the very image of a son. He wants each one of us to reflect the character of a son. And that does not mean that we all become clones of each other. Instead, it means that each one of us grows to reflect Christ through our own unique personalities, our own unique skills, our own unique abilities. That's the final purpose of his work. To see the image of God reflected in a million different ways. To reflect the image of God is to attain our highest destiny. This is what we were created for. This is what the Father wants to restore to His children. And He will work all things to accomplish that purpose. That is a purpose that is truly good. And that is why He can say in verse 28 that for those who love God, all things work together for good. God uses all things to accomplish that purpose. Difficult things included. When he says in verse 32, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He doesn't mean all things that we want. He means all things that help us to attain to the purpose of reflecting the image of Christ, including things that are painful, maybe even things that are evil. God is so powerful that he can use things that are evil to accomplish good. Out of the many examples in the Bible, let's pick three. The first one should be familiar to the boys and girls sitting here with us today. The story of Joseph, right? Kids, you all know the story of Joseph. His brother sold him into slavery. If you think about what that involves, you can't get much more evil than that. Your own brothers selling you into slavery. Joseph was taken far away to Egypt. He became the manager of, uh, of the home of Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's guard. Eventually, he was falsely accused, even though he lived an upright life, that he spent two years in prison for something he didn't do. Then through a series of divinely orchestrated circumstances, he becomes second in command to Pharaoh. Through his God-given insight and careful planning, he prevents a famine from destroying the country. And it's not until 20 years later that he sees his brothers again. And they ask him for forgiveness. And then you get to the climax of that part in the book of Genesis. You know what he says? He says to them, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. He's acknowledging to them, look, this was evil. You intended to harm me. Can you think of anything more harmful to do to a sibling than to sell him into slavery? But God intended it for good. Not only the good of saving all of those people collectively, but also the good of turning Joseph from admittedly a, a somewhat spoiled character into a committed believer. The second example of how God uses evil for good comes from Jeremiah 29. Much later, God's people were taken into exile from their home. They were taken to Babylon. 
the most traumatic thing that could have happened to them. And if you want to know what could all be involved in that, then spend some time tonight reading in a Bible encyclopedia about the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Very traumatic. But they had it coming. In Jeremiah 29 verse 4, God says that He was the one who carried them into exile. And He did that because of their sins. But then He promises to work the situation for their good. Jeremiah 29 verse 11 to 13 says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So here's God working in the midst of evil, a dual evil, the evil of his own people and the evil of those who took them out of the promised land. Evil everywhere. And God in the midst of that says, I will work this to the long-term good. And the last example of God working evil out of good is the most evil thing that ever happened to anyone on earth. And that was a crucifixion of the Son of God. No greater evil has ever been done. No greater crime has ever been committed than that. And yet God worked that greatest evil to the greatest good, the ultimate good of all of his people. Isaiah 53 verse 10 says it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Why? To make his life a guilt offering. To take away the sins of his people. And after all that, says Paul, who can still be against us? Who can still be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? So the cross really is the ultimate guarantee of God's love to his people. It's a love that will never let us down, that will never diminish. He's a father in whom you can trust so completely as to have no doubt But you need to realize who God is, and you also need to realize what doubt is. That's our second point. We live in a time that celebrates doubt. Sad but true. It's one of the most irritating things about postmodernism. Postmodernism celebrates doubt. We've convinced ourselves somehow that doubt is a good thing. People who constantly question things are considered to be progressive, almost authentic. There's a certain authenticity that comes with doubt in our mind. From that perspective, doubt is considered by many to be something almost meritorious. People who doubt can sometimes come across as very humble. You can spend a lot of time with these people discussing the big questions in life, and in the end they'll make it sound like they can't really know the answers to anything. But what they really mean by that is that no one else can know either. That is a claim to truth. There's nothing humble about that. Do you know what the Bible says about doubt? James 1 verse 8 says that the man who doubts is double-minded. Literally, it says he is two-souled. It's as if he lives in two worlds. One in which he believes the goodness of God and one where he doesn't. That kind of thinking shows a profound disruption of the self. The Old Testament doesn't even have a word for that. In the Old Testament, you either accept God's word or you reject it. 
But this idea of someone who believes one half and rejects the other half and is forever on the fence and cannot make up his mind and then stays that way is not a legitimate category of being. The closest example of that kind of person would probably be King Ahaz in Isaiah 7. He was told to ask God for a sign, but he refused. He said, I will not put the Lord to the test. And it sounded very pious, but it was a hard-headed expression of doubt. He refused to trust the Lord in the face of very difficult circumstances, and, and he was not commended for that. You know what the biggest problem is with doubt? The biggest problem with doubt is that it is a breach of the fellowship that we have with God. Think about it for a moment. How do we have fellowship with God? How do we abide in God? We do it through faith. Faith is the essential ingredient. Doubt breaches that faith. Doubt damages that fellowship. This is why doubt is such a toxic thing in the life of a Christian. Doubt also offends God and calls his character into question. A reading from Romans 8 makes it very clear that his intentions towards me will always be good. He proved that in Christ. He proved that with finality. Who are we then to doubt the words of the living God? Doubt calls the word of God into question. God's word makes wonderful promises to us. The word of God was first pronounced over us at our baptism. Right there. That's where it began. That's where God spoke to us with authority. He laid his claim on our lives. He spoke promises over our lives. He made a promise and he laid upon us an obligation. Are we willing to submit to that authority? Are we willing to believe his promises? If not, then we're calling that word into question. When we consider all of these things, we can only conclude that doubt is sin. But is this not a sin in which we have all engaged? Have we not all struggled with doubt at different times? If anyone has never doubted, that's only because they haven't seen much. No, we can sometimes be like the father of the demon-possessed boy in Mark 9, verse 24, who cried out to Jesus, I do believe. Help me to overcome my unbelief. And God answers that prayer. God wants us doubting people to grow into the likeness of Christ. Is that not what it means to be a father? To look at your child and to see your likeness in his or her face. Likeness is, in biblical terms, not purely physical resemblance, but it's disposition and characteristics. It is, to use a, the terminology of the catechism, true righteousness and holiness. And the Father desires and enables us to, to grow into that, to grow into this likeness of His Son. So ultimately it comes back to our relationship with Him in Jesus Christ. If our confidence rests in that relationship, if it rests in our status as His children, if it's built on His promises, then it will be untouchable.
And maybe you're not that far yet. Maybe you're afraid to trust because you've been disappointed so often in your life. You don't want to be disappointed again. Maybe you never even would put it that way, but it's in the back of your mind. Maybe you don't have the no-holds-barred trust yet that you need to throw yourself down the stairs, so to speak. After all, what if your support gives away? What if your circumstances change? What if your father was not there? But what the catechism is describing goes beyond experience or even multiple experiences. It is a state of being. It is a state of being that is not affected by whether things go according to our plans or not. It is a state of being that is not founded on how we feel, does not depend on our circumstances, but is built purely on the unbreakable promises of God. My God, my Father. In Him I trust so completely as to have no doubt that He will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul, and will also turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this life of sorrow. He is able to do so as Almighty God and willing also as a faithful Father. Amen.